Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. My name is Kimberly Cook, and I am the Senior Administrator at the Hendrick Center. Today, I'm joined by Drs. Glenn Kreider and Scott Harrell, who are both professors in our Theological Studies Department here at DTS. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Harrell and Dr. Kreider. We really appreciate your time. Um, Today, we are going to be talking about a really fun but somewhat intricate conversation on the Trinity. We're going to be talking about what happened to the Trinity on the cross. Um, the, the Bible verse, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And other ones mm. around that have really kind of set up a variety of interpretations in how we understand that verse and the concept of um, Jesus being forsaken on the cross, and particularly because it impacts how we might view the Trinity, uh, particularly what happened on the cross, but just in general, how we understand the Trinity and how we understand God's relationship even with us, um, and if we can be forsaken or what that looks like. Dr. Harrell, let's start with you. If you wouldn't mind, you're kind of the resident Trinity expert on campus. That's kind of what one of the things you're known for, and so we if you wouldn't mind just kind of walking us through before we get too deeply into what happened um, at the cross specifically, just what are some really key points that we need to be have in mind uh, with regard to the Trinity as we kind of walk into this space? How should we properly understand the Trinity and the, the dynamics that we really need to keep in mind? Well, thanks, Kim. It's good to be on here. It really is. And uh, expert on the Trinity, I don't want lightning coming out of heaven. So we all stand humbly before, I would say, the mystery of our God. But if we are to define it, what I would say is that the one true God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Equal in nature, really one in nature, equal in glory, because it's a shared glory, finally, and distinct in relations. The Father is always the Father, the Son is always the Son. So in that, we really have one God, one essence, one nature, one substance that is God, and lots of biblical passages that lead us that way. And yet, increasingly, especially as we come into the New Testament, you see that the Son is really God as well. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Wow. And, of course, John's Gospel uh, drives that deeply as we continue on. So you have a Son who is God and a Father who is God, and, and with time we begin to see the Spirit, too, speaks in the first person. Father says, I am. The Son says, I am. And the Spirit speaks of, set aside, Paul and Barnabas for the mission that I have for them in Acts and so forth. So we see three persons, one God, and that's kind of framed by the Council of Nicaea, the first ecumenical council of the church Mm -hmm. in 325 was called together to, to determine, is the Son really God of the same essence as the Father, or is he not? And so 325, we have the Council of Nicaea and the initial form of the Nicene Creed, 381, that's refined more in what is called the Constantinopolitan Creed, 
which we usually call the Nicene Creed. But basically, yes, one God, three persons, and that frames the mystery in which the church has walked ever since. Okay, so thank you for that. That was so concise. I feel like we should just even cut that down and it can be a nice <laughs> encounter Example for anybody question. who's needing <laughs> to brush up on their trinity. Um, uh, so Dr. Kreider, turning to you, again, probably more preparing for the conversation. Uh, what are the passages that typically are in play uh, when we are thinking through what happened to the Trinity on the cross? What are the pieces? You know, I already quoted one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What are the other two or three key passages that people really kind of look at and say, you know, because when we look at scripture, we can't just take one Bible verse. We have to look at the corpus. We have to look at what, what all it says and then say, okay, these are the pieces that we have and we have to figure out, you know, to the best of our ability, how to fit them together. What are some of those other pieces that are a part of this conversation? Mm. Yeah. And you've, you've given the key one, whether it's in Matthew or Mark, uh, Jesus quotation from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, and that's basically it. I mean, we've got com we've got uh, how to interpret Isaiah fifty three, uh, and actually how to interpret Psalm twenty two, and what Jesus is doing with Psalm twenty two. Many people who take a particular view of, of "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" go back to Habakkuk uh, one thirteen that God can never His eyes are too pure to look on evil, mm -hmm. and that's really kind of the the issue here. That from the very beginning, we have, we have the declaration twice in the New Testament that Jesus is born of a virgin. But as to how that works, how that was accomplished, we have the mysterious language that the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. And I think something similar is going on at the end of Jesus' life, where um, we, we have... Um, Ambiguous is too strong a word, but we have these very little detail, which doesn't stop us from speculating, and that's part of the issue here, uh, to try to figure out what, is, as uh, Dr. Rell said a moment ago, what is this great mystery which is beyond our ability to understand? Okay, and Dr. Harrell, are there any other passages you would throw into the conversation as well that people should be aware of? Well, I think reflecting the complexity of all of this is just looking at the Gospels themselves, because as Dr. Kreider said, Matthew and Mark, the only words they have of Jesus on the cross are out of you know, Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then at the end, a few verses later, he, he, he cries out in a loud voice and dies. Luke approaches it differently. And remember, John and Luke both uh, had... Uh, significant contact with Mary at the foot of the cross, and John was there himself. Luke is almost more positive. He says on the way, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, the old King James. And then you have the thief on the cross and asking for mercy as the Lord comes into his kingdom, and Jesus says, Today you'll be with me in paradise. And then his third statement in the Gospel of Luke is, uh, into your, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. In John, it's almost more neutral. He says, I thirst. Uh, 
woman, behold your son, son, behold your woman, as he talks to your mother, as he talks to Mary and uh, the disciple John. And then at the very end, the third statement and only and final statement in John's gospel is, it is finished, which is really interesting because then in the gospels, you have both kind of the negative, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet in Luke, almost a positive trust in the Father, and in John, it's, it's rather neutral in all of this. And even just before the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says to the disciples, You're all, you will all abandon me, you all leave me, but my Father will be with me, as he talks about what's before him. So it's, it's a fascinating, what do you say again, complexity, a puzzle that we don't entirely understand. Okay, so now that we've laid the foundation, we have a general idea of how we should be understanding the Trinity in general. And now we also have an idea of some of the passages and some of the, converse, uh, some of the conversations that lead into this question. So what happened to the Trinity on the cross? Essentially, was it, was it broken? Was Jesus forsaken? If so, what does that mean? for the Trinity, which is supposed to be one substance, like you were talking about, Harrell, uh, Dr. Harrell. Um, so I think what might be most helpful for our listeners is to walk through, um, at first, just what are the differing views? What are the different ways that this is interpreted? So Dr. Kreider, do you think you could take, I, I don't, I, I'm going to be honest, I don't even know how many there are. <laughs> Um, but do you think you could take at least one, one or two, um, if you want to start? And then Dr. Hurrell will also talk to you about this one as well. Yeah, there's one other preliminary okay. conviction that I think we should um, remind ourselves. And that is whatever we say about the relationship in the Godhead, whatever we say about what happened on the cross, we must not cross the line that implies or, or states that the Trinity is broken, that somehow this perfect harmony, this perfect relationship in the Godhead is broken, because that, would, that, would has, that has devastating effects and consequences. So if the relationship between the Godhead is broken, the whole universe passes out of existence, uh, because that destroys the, the, the oneness and the unity of the Godhead. So that, that is one of the one of the boundaries we should not cross. On the other hand, on the other end, is the boundary that fails to wrestle with the text. We have to do something with these texts. And uh, I'll just talk a little bit about Matthew 27 and uh, the, the, the parallel text in Mark. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There, there are a number of questions that that quotation raises and I think the the interpretations fall into two broad categories. There, there are nuances, and there might be other um, distinguishable positions. But but one position argues that, and it's popularized in hymnody, particularly modern hymnody, in an attempt to explain the unexplainable, an attempt to make. Uh, concrete that which is difficult to understand, which is pretty much to say the same thing. The, the, a metaphor has been introduced that is deeply troubling, uh, and that is that the father turned his face away. 
that that's a metaphor for describing forsakenness that I think has caused a lot of people to think, and there are actually people who argue this position, that on the cross, when Jesus took on the sin of the world, God poured out his hatred on his son, his anger, his wrath on his son, because God can't look, can't be in the presence of sin, that, uh, that, uh, that at that moment, uh, the loving relationship between the Father and the Son is broken. I can hardly begin to tell you how horrifying that is theologically, and how horrifying that is ministerially. If at his moment of greatest need, the father forsook his son, if at his time of greatest need, the, the father abandoned the one he loves the most, we have no hope. In fact, Jesus taught us, and it's in Deuteronomy long before we get to the New Testament, it's the promise of the indwelling spirit, that, that the, the promise that I will never leave you or forsake you. And that promise becomes vacuous and meaningless if our Savior on the cross experienced the uh, abandonment by his Father. So if, it's, if that's not an acceptable position, then what's the alternative? And let me try to do this fairly quickly. It's the question of what does it mean to say he was forsaken. Forsaken in English often has a connotation of of being left alone, of being, uh, it's a negative connotation. But I think there's a also a positive connotation of being forsaken as well. So rather than saying that this text doesn't mean what it says, uh, I would say, uh, in in this moment of great anguish, when the son takes on himself the wages of sin, the consequences of sin, if you will, if you will, the penalty of sin, he looks into the eyes of the only one who could deliver him, and his father does nothing, and he dies, not alone, but he submits to the will of the father, but in submitting to the will of the father, he also um, as he says in John 10, this is, it's my life. I lay it down, I take it up again. This is the agreement I have with my Father. So Jesus' death on the cross was a murder, but it wasn't a murder that wasn't under his control. He willingly submitted to the will of the Father throughout his entire life. The Gospels make that point over and over again. But at this moment, he has the power over the authority over his life. And Nicaea says it's for us and for our salvation. Paul says in Ephesians, it's out of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy. So that what motivated uh, the son on the cross, and I think that's what motivated the father as well, was his love for, um, for those who would be redeemed by him. Okay, and just to make sure that um, we're clear uh, on this, Dr. Kreider, so in the, um, in the interpretation that you are, are speaking of, how and how, you know, it, as opposed to something really was broken in the Trinity and all of the massive ramifications that that would have that would be unchristian, um, what, how is forsaken understood specifically in what you're talking about? Yeah, so in order to understand how Jesus is using the psalm, 
I think it's helpful to look at the psalm. And that probably, as many scholars have argued, when Jesus quotes from Psalm 22, he maybe even verbalizes the rest of the psalm. It's just not recorded for us. But surely everyone standing around the cross recognizes the language of Psalm 22, and they, they know how that psalm ends. So in verse, I think it's verse 24, the second half of the psalm promises deliverance, promises resurrection, so that David expresses in this time of suffering and persecution his uh, experience, his feeling of being abandoned, of being forsaken, but he clings to the promise that God will deliver him, that God will vindicate him and set him free. And right in the middle, in verse 24, I think it is, he says, and uh, the promise that, that God will not turn his face from me. That's, that's what's problematic about the lyric of the psalm, because the metaphor that the song uses for forsaken is a metaphor that's explicitly rejected in the psalm that Jesus is quoting in verse 22. So how, how should we understand forsaken? Back, I didn't forget the question you asked. How should we understand forsaken? So in a, in a way, in a, to a much greater extent than David was able to uh, experience. And David experienced feeling forsaken by God, that God is not defending him, that God is not acting on his behalf. And he looks, it's the lament tradition. When David looks at what's going on around him and says, if you are a, a, a good and holy and just powerful God, why don't you do something? And I think that's what David is expressing. My God, my God, I feel like I am forsaken by you. When Jesus quotes out on the cross, he is much, a much higher degree of persecution and suffering and forsakenness. So that I think forsaken means not that the father turned his face away, not that God abandoned him at his time of greatest need, but the father uh, did not deliver him. Uh, in a similar way that righteous people throughout history, the Daniel's friends, when, Neb when Nebuchadnezzar says, you're going to bow to the idol, and they say no, and he says, you don't know who I am. And they say, yeah, we know who you are, but our God is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow. People of faith throughout history have always recognized that God is able to do what we want him to do, but he doesn't always respond and deliver us from evil. And I think that's what it means to be forsaken. He was forsaken to the murder that his enemies carried out against him so that he wasn't forsaken by the father, but he was forsaken too. Be because there's no way for God the Father to have delivered him and accomplished the plan of redemption they had agreed before the foundation of the world. This, this is when he's pleading with God, with the Father at Gethsemane, if there's some other way, but not my will, but yours be done. It's a recognition that this is this is what is required, and never in Jesus' life, I think this is fair, never in Jesus' life did he come so face-to-face -face with the purpose, one of the purposes for which he came, and that is to redeem sin, to take upon himself, back to John chapter 1, 
as John the Baptist put it, to, that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay, and so I feel like what I'm hearing um, from you, Dr. Kreider, is that there are at least two interpretations. One would be that indeed the Father did forsake the Son and turned his face away, as you were saying from the popular song. Um, and then another would be looking at that more at um, the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, as essentially a throwback to Psalm 22 and really understanding forsaken in the sense that um, God did not deliver Jesus from the cross um, for, you know, a variety of reasons, but that would be what it is speaking of. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, it's the language that we hear Paul use uh, in Romans and elsewhere when he says that the Father delivered him over where he delivered him up for our justification. That, that's what I understand forsaken to, to mean. Mm. Not that the father actually carried out what happened to him, but delivered him to uh, the murder that, uh, that was carried out. But I didn't confuse the issue there. <laughs> I don't think so. We'll see. <laughs> God is a genius storyteller. And the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Uh, Dr. Harrell, okay, so we've we've heard those two interpretations. Are you aware of some other interpretations um, of forsaken and and that particular phrase or just how we understand what happened on the cross? Well, sure, there are other ones out there. There's uh, many today, certainly wouldn't represent us, want to deny any kind of a substitutionary role of Christ on the cross. So almost unanimously, they, if they believe in the Trinity at all, and many do, would, would reject any idea of uh, forsakenness. Let me take this, though, uh, all the way up to God before creation, as uh, Dr. Kreider did in part. I mean, what happens at the cross, as through all of, all of God's working in history, is a, is a Trinitarian acting. It's not Father versus Son. This is a decision, as, as, as Glenn said, First Peter 1, what is it, 1920, somewhere in there. You know, this is one, an unblemished lamb whose blood was shed, as it were, from before the foundation of the world. This is a plan before creation, and, and Revelation has some hints that way as well. So, as we talk about the incarnation, we also talk about creation and the, and the immensity of God's work throughout. And this is a Trinitarian decision. 
This is as much the son. This is not divine child abuse, as some would like to say. This is as much the son's decision right from the outset. We see that and, and as Jesus begins his ministry, as it is that of the Father, and, and we cannot ignore the Holy Spirit here either. So uh, I, I, I think there's, there's many different strands that are coming in here. The one side that leans against what Dr. Kreider said has, is, is that there's so many verses that seem so shockingly strong, like Isaiah 53 that was mentioned earlier, that pleased the Father, pleased God to bruise him, speaking of the Messiah. He was pierced for our transgressions. Many, many terms like that, that that seem to go deep into a wrath being poured out. Uh, you know, 2 Corinthians 5.21 is really strong. For God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, for all of us, that the righteousness, uh, that we might become the righteousness of God. There are a lot of texts there. So when we ask, was the Trinity broken? Well, of course it wasn't. If you say it was, you're outside of orthodoxy. You are a heretic. It is a kind of pejorative uh, question, actually. But what's the inner dynamic of the triune God? Uh, certainly the essence of God, the oneness of God, is not divided. And even more complex things come in. How could God, how could the Son be eternally generated, or the eternal generation of the Son occur, and the eternal procession of the Spirit, how could that occur at the same time as here the Son is bearing the sin of the world on the cross? And yet it does seem that there is not just a turning away, but a wrath of God that's being poured out. I would argue that it's the wrath, paradoxically, not only of the Son, excuse me, not only of the Father, but also Christ is satisfying his own hatred of sin. The Spirit is involved here, too, as there is a complete satisfaction for sin. But is there, in that, is there, is there some kind of a, a division between, what do you say, God and humanity? Let me add another dimension here. You've got Nicaea and the clear, the clear profession of Trinity, but you also have the Council of Chalcedon. You have the first two ecumenical councils, Nicaea and Constantinople, affirm the full deity, not only of Jesus Christ, but finally in 3D1 of the Holy Spirit as well. But then we come to the third and fourth ecumenical councils, Ephesus and really Chalcedon, 451, is where you have this profession of the one Jesus Christ, the only begotten, who is in two natures, and they're not confuse. They're not changed. They're not separated. They're not divided. Indeed, the language of Chalcedon is very strong, that they are united in the one person, prosopon, and hypostasis, the one being of Jesus Christ. They cannot be pulled apart. So as we talk about Trinity and the cross, we have this, we have the two primary confessions of Christian faith, Trinity, but that's the God-man on the cross. So, and it is the wrath of God, it seems, from a number of passages, actually being poured out on him. So I see, I see a mystery here that, that's not easily untangled. Is it? Glenn, you'll call me a heretic now. But is it possible that there is a darkening of the koinonia 
appreciated forever and ever and ever in all of eternity as the Son is on the cross. Uh, Dr. Harrell, just to be clear, what do you mean by koinonia for those people who are listening who might not know what that is? The full fellowship that the Son has eternally enjoyed with the Father and the Holy Spirit, I think we can say. So as he bears the sins of the world, something he anticipated was planned before time. Was he enduring the wrath of God, which includes his own, ironically, as he hung on the cross? Now, when he cries, it is finished. Certainly, he enters into into Hades, or as some translations, hell, but as the victorious Savior, it is finished. There's no further suffering as some, even Calvin, have implied. But, but is there that moment in history? For me, there's a lot of, lot, of, lot of complexities here, but it is the very fact that this Son of God died on the cross, that crucified God, to quote one well-known title, that for me, more than anything else, shows that God cannot be one person. He's not a righteous man like John the Baptist. Rather, this is really God, who is both just and the justifier of those who believe. He is he's really distinct from the Father, not just an anointed, spirit-filled man. And so with that, with that awfulness of the cross and the Son bearing in some way, the wrath of God. With the resurrection, ascension, and glorification of our Savior, all the more we see God is not one person. He has to be at least two persons. So, I'm I'm not sure where we go. We've got these different strands coming in, and any single solution seems to me less than satisfying. So, let me try this, Scott. Um, and no, I would not call you a heretic. I don't use no, that don't for friends. Um, but also thank you for pointing out what we all agree and affirm. That um, and Maybe I should have said this one earlier, too. We, we all uh, believe in substitutionary atonement. That from the very beginning of the Christian faith, sub, the, the atoning work of Christ has always been affirmed as substitutionary. Mm-hmm. Since the Reformation, it's been affirmed as a penal substitution. A penalty was paid, or wages were paid, and uh, so that there's a there's something legal. Uh, there's a legal metaphor at play, and so nobody in this room um, would affirm a heretical view, a non-substitutionary view. And in fact, I want to go on record as affirming a penal substitutionary view, as uh, as Scott did too. But here's my concern. Um, Isaiah 53 is a challenging, poetical, prophetical text. It seems interesting to me that that text you quoted in verse 10, in the Septuagint is translated, not as it pleased the Lord to crush him, but it pleased the Lord to cleanse or purify him. That's a pretty significantly different reading than the Masoretic text. Uh, Secondly, it's also, uh, I think, it's at least interesting that none of the New Testament writers quote that text, that when they describe what happened to Jesus on the cross, every single one, every single time, they attribute to 
They attribute the death of Jesus to the murderers. You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. They never attribute that to the Father. Never. What they attribute to the Father is the gospel. But God raised him from the dead. It is finished, as you know, is a figure of speech that doesn't indicate that it is finished. It's a declaration of completion. And the work of Christ on, in, in redemption is not finished until he returns to earth and makes all things new. So in no way minimizing the importance of that declaration, there is no more atonement for sin necessary. But we continue to look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. One other text. It's interesting to me that in Hebrews chapter 12, after that uh, long list of people who persevered in faith, we are surrounded, the writer of Hebrews said, by so great a cloud of witnesses. So let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the version that I memorized, the author and finisher of our faith, ESV, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And hear this. Who for the, and this, <laughs> that was not to my two colleagues, I know you know this text. <laughs> um, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I can't make any sense of the view that says the Father was the cause of the Son's shame. I can't make any sense of the view that said what happened on the cross was the Father caused the suffering and the death of His Son. I can't, I can't make sense of any view that makes the Father the cause of the thing that the Son wishes he didn't have to go through, especially mm -hmm. since every, every gospel and every apostolic sermon, and as Tom McCall has put it recently in his book, and all the preaching of the early church attributes the death of Jesus to the murderers and his resurrection to his Father. So maybe this is what the way we ought to read uh, Isaiah 53.10, that it wasn't crushing his son that caused God pleasure. It was rather the, <clears throat> the, the salvation of humanity that, and, and of all creation that would occur because of the atonement for the sins of the whole world. And that, that it seems to me, is less prone to the charge that you actually believe in a God who crushed his son? You actually believe that on the cross the father abused his son? You actually believe in, and, and, and to say, so here's what I'll ultimately say about that. Uh, since I don't want my view to be heard to sound like divine child abuse, I don't use language that sounds like divine child abuse. Mm -hmm. I attribute the evil that happened to the son, to the perpetrators of the evil. I don't let the, 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 the evildoers off the hook. I don't let the perpetrators off the hook. I don't, I don't further victimize the victim by saying, you brought this on yourself. I say, no, you with the help of wicked men brought, put him to death, but God has raised him from the dead. And in so doing, 
It doesn't solve all the problems. And it doesn't resolve, as we've said multiple times, this incredible mystery. And thanks for taking us back to before the foundation of the world. This, All of this is the work of the Trinitarian koinonia. Let me, let me just real quickly say, and neither Peter nor the book of Revelation means that prior to creation, God, the Son, took on flesh, the Father took him out and killed him. There are people who actually teach that, uh, so I just felt like I needed to say, that's not what that means. <laughs> so, okay, so I'm just going to step in for one second. Dr. Kreider, it seems like um, the the interpretation that um, you're exploring that, uh, again, of uh, throwing back to Psalm 22 and thinking through um, forsaken being more God did not deliver him, it really seems to be driven by a value of wanting to avoid it looking at, you know, the situation looking like divine child abuse, that, that critique that has been made about Christianity and about this very question. Um, so that seems to be what that value is. Uh, that's kind of driving. And, and obviously your, your reading of the interpretation and everything, but uh, Dr. Harrell, Dr. what would you say might be the value of behind the idea that God did turn his face away, that there was some kind of darkening of the koinonia, like you said, what, I, what would be the value behind that? Go ahead, Dr. Kreider. Yes. Could I add one, uh, I don't want it to sound like, and I just in, I don't think this is what you were saying. I don't want it to be misunderstood. Mm-hmm. What drives this is not merely being able to respond to the prevalent charge of divine child abuse. That's a really serious issue and incredibly important for us. But what also what drives it, and I would like to say the foundation before that, what drives it is the character of a loving God. That to I want to um, the, the God who reveals himself in Scripture declares that he is merciful and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And I think he actually is that. And it seems to me to be inconsistent with that God to see him not treating his son in a loving and merciful and kind and gracious way. And I, I don't want to anticipate Dr. Harrell's response. Uh, uh, I'm not pitting the love of God against other attributes. I, I'm not pitting God's love against other attributes. I, what I'm trying to do is to preserve the integrity of who God is, the simplicity of who God is, and avoid pitting attributes against attributes. Thank you for that clarification. I in no way was trying to <laughs> throw you on to a, you know, um, what's it called? An extreme. Um, okay. Uh, doc, and Dr. Harrell, what might be some of the values that, again, that this other interpretation is, is preserving? Yeah, let me back up a little bit just to say that um, I'm not just saying it's the Father's wrath. There is a justice and righteousness of God of the Son and the Spirit as much as the Father, though each has their, their roles in, in the salvation offered freely to all humankind, that wrath of God somehow is being also absorbed by the Son, even in the midst of it all. So uh, I want to say kind of a both end, if I can. One of the values, uh, Kim, would be this. When we look in the Garden of Eden and find Adam there, Jesus is called the last Adam, 
what happens with the sin that occurs that has marked all of humanity ever since? First of all, Adam and Eve are separated from God. They, God comes asking, where are you? And they then are distorted within themselves. There's this brokenness inside. And finally, that amounts to going back to dust. You will die. Your inner reality, your inner soul, will be divided from your body. In came the tension between Adam and Eve. And soon we see, of course, Cain and Abel, and on from there. Uh, we see the brokenness with nature, that now they have to leave paradise, Eden, and in fact, thorns and thistles will, will spurt from the ground. What I find fascinating is that, you know, this is, these, these divisions, I call them, uh, that started in Genesis 3, track all the way through the scriptures and all the way through human history. They're what we spend, most of humanity, 95% of our time or more trying to overcome. We, we have religions. We, we want to live as long and prosperously as we can and healthy. We don't want to die. We want relations with others. Uh, nature is a constant battle for an agrarian world until, what, the last 20 years. So you see these divisions everywhere, and here comes Christ as the Savior of the world. He is the last Adam. What is he doing on the cross? It seems to me, in some sense, he is suffering those same divisions that all of humanity has suffered. He is our substitute as the last Adam. And so, in some sense, there is that estrangement in koinonia, or again, fellowship with the Father. I don't know how to explain that, because there is the love of God. You know the Father is, is, is you might say, suffering with the Son in the midst of all of this. There's no doubt about that, but there is a wrath being poured out that is aligned with the entire character of God. It is the justice being met so that I can be forgiven. So as we look at the cross, here's, here's the darkness. Here's the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here's Jesus tortured, and he dies, his flesh from his soul, I guess you'd say, torn apart. He's forsaken, what, by his disciples. His own brothers and sisters didn't believe till, till later. Uh, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. He's the light of the world, but the darkness does not comprehend him. And you see, there on the cross, you see him crowned with thorns, the very mark and curse of the garden, the earthquake, uh, the rock split, the temple veil torn from top to bottom. You see these separations being evidenced, it seems like in every way. They're, they're, they're marks on every side. So I take it that in some way, this God-man, Chalcedon's one Jesus Christ our Lord, is experiencing these things in our place as our substitute, even as he's satisfying uh, his own righteousness as that, as that of the Father. So it is a, it is a, that's why I'm kind of saying a both end rather than an either or. And it's like Nicaea, the th one God, three persons, like Chalcedon, one person, but what? Two very different natures. I see the Trinity and the cross as one of those other mysteries that we have no real solution to. I think D.A. Carson called this, it's like peering over a precipice. There's, there's not 
really satisfying answers. And I think Dr. Carter would agree with that. We are left astonished. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a reason that, you know, as, as we look at the soteriology of heaven, there's the Lamb of God, chapter 5, who's called the Lamb all the way through to chapter 22, who's sharing now the throne with the Father, but he is worshipped by all heaven and earth and all, all existence by, by the fact that he, by his blood, uh, propitiated the wrath of God against sin. So, I wish we had answers. I wish I did. I think, however, that as we have glorified bodies, and we'll see a little bit more clearly than we do today, that there is a, the fact that 10,000 years from now, or 100,000, there are these complex mysteries of God that are both astonishing and beautiful, and yet we don't have the full answer. The Lord will reveal a little more and a little more. We won't all have it down, you know, in the first, first, uh, first while in heaven. But mysteries lead us to worship, I think, and... And this is one that I would put in there with, with the other ones that don't quite have a final answer. So we are very close to running out of time. So just to summarize our basic conversation, um, with regard to what happened uh, to the Trinity on the cross and, um, and the tensions that those questions create, particularly around the, the verse, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There are a variety of interpretations. Some of them take us outside of what we would consider to be Christian. Um, those interpretations would be those that might, that would deny any kind of substitutionary atonement. That, there would be some serious questions about that, that interpretation. There would also be serious interpretations about, um, serious questions about an interpretation that established that or asserted that the Trinity itself was broken. That also, I think we, you can, we can all agree (laughs) would be outside of bounds. Um, So those are interpretations that would be off limits. However, the two interpretations we've specifically talked about today would be considering really probably more of an emphasis on um, considering my God, my God, why have you forsaken me as, um, as a reiteration of Psalm 22 and thinking through it as God has um, just not delivered Jesus, but there was not any kind of, ooh, (laughs) so technical, (laughs) Um, God delivering, not delivering Jesus. Um, And then the other side would be that, like Dr. Harrell, like you said, that there would be a, um, a darkening of the fellowship between the Father and the Son. And those would be two interpretations that are driven by, again, by research and, in, and interpretation of specific passages, but um, really the, the values would be wanting to emphasize and make sure that you are, um, in your interpretation, you're representing the justice and satisfaction of the Lord, um, of the Father in, in that act on the cross. And then um, the other interpretation might be really highlighting and trying to defend the loving character of the Father. So both are are valid and really probably just have different emphases more than anything else. Um, 
but they definitely are a place for conversation <laughs> and for contemplation. And I just want to thank you all so much, um, Dr. Harrell and Dr. Kreider, for joining us today and for kind of wading into these weighty waters with us and um, being willing to just talk through something that is really tough. And like we have all agreed and said at the end of all of this is a giant mystery. Um, like you said, Dr. Harrell, it's a giant precipice <laughs> and we're not quite sure um, exactly what happened. And we knew that that was going to be the conclusion of <laughs> this podcast, but at least it's worth talking about. One of the other professors we used to have um, at DTS, he's no longer there, but I, I'll never forget sitting there. And he said, but you can't punt to mystery too quickly. Don't let yourself punt to mystery too quickly. We'll have to go there eventually. And so I really appreciate you all and your time um, working with us and not letting us punt too quickly. So thank you again for joining us. And um, thank you, those of you who are listening for joining us. Um, and we just encourage you to come back next week when we will discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.